And together to the brief reading of Scripture this evening from the book of First John, uh, chapter 4, as we read verses 7 through 12 only. The book of First John in the New Testament, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Thus reads once more the living word of God. Now, this evening we've come together to share a new section of this great letter of First John that we have been exploring together on many Sunday evenings. You remember that so far the themes of the book of First John have been very clear and very simple but profound at the same time. The purpose of writing the book, as we have increasingly discovered together, has been to provide three great tests as to whether we are genuinely in Christ, to separate the genuine Christian from the counterfeit Christian. And these three tests, you remember, have been what we've called the moral test, that is to say, are we living righteous lives before the God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? Are we walking in the light and obeying the commandments of God and doing what pleases him? And then there was, secondly, you remember the social test, and that was whether we love one another and uh, whether we live in that brotherliness that should characterize the Christian church and Christian people. And the third one, of course, was the doctrinal test, whether we are committed to walking in the truth, and especially in the great foundational truth, you remember, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, but he has really come in the flesh for sinful men. The very cardinal truth, you remember, that the Gnostics in John's day were foremost in denying and that lies at the root of every denial of the Christian faith in our own day. Now, these tests, you remember, have been developed one by one through this great book, and yet they're not separate in a sense, they belong together, and each in its own way and sense, is vitally important. Now, as we've come this evening to one of these three tests again, you might be tempted to ask which is the most important of the three. 
And I have to remind you that, really, there's no answer to that question, because all of them are important, and all of them must be taken together. We might rephrase the question and ask rather, which one do we most lack? And I suggest to you that there is value in asking that question. It's a better form of the question. We could also ask, upon which one does John put the most emphasis? And I think we have the answer in the passage that is in front of us this evening in verses 7 through 12. Because I think there's no doubt, whatever, as you read through the five chapters of First John, you find that John lays the most emphasis upon what we have called the social test. Do we really walk in love with one another? It's not that he neglects the doctrinal test, nor that he bypasses the moral test. Do we live a righteous life? Do we walk in the light? But you find him again and again, beloved, returning to this theme of the question of whether the love of God indwells us and we correspondingly love one another in Christ. And it seems to me that John discerningly knew that even in the fellowship in the New Testament churches, if there was one mark of the Christian that was not so clear as the others, it was the question, did they love one another? Did they really love one another in the brotherhood? And you remember that this is the third significant section in John's letter that is given over to this theme. He deals with it in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, and chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, both of which sections we studied at an earlier evening service. Now, as we come to this section this evening, there are really three things in it of very great importance. We are commanded to love one another if we are genuine Christians and not the counterfeit article on three separate grounds. And the first of these grounds, you notice, in verses 7 through 8, is simply this. We are to love one another because God in his own nature is like that. He is love. Now look at these verses with me before we begin to dig into them this evening and to explore them together. John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, my dear friends, this evening, as you come to these verses, you might be tempted to say that this is simply repetition. Hasn't John gone over and over this ground uh, again and again? And it's rather interesting that one of the early church fathers, Jerome, quotes these words of the Apostle John as he was old and aged, and I remind you that this is apocryphal, it's not scripture, but it's very interesting. 
that Jerome says of John, St. John the Evangelist, living in Ephesus in his extreme old age, when he was with difficulty carried into the church by his disciples, had no strength for long exhortations, but could only say, little children love one another. At length, says Jerome, the disciples and brethren, wearied by the repetition, asked, Master, why do you always say this? And he replied in words worthy of himself, Because it is the Lord's command. And if that is done, it suffices. Now isn't that interesting, even though it is apocryphal? And what I want to say to you this evening is that while John returns to this theme again and again, it's like climbing a spiral staircase. In a sense, as you go round and round, you might say, well, I'm in the same position on this staircase that I was the last time I went round. But really, that's not true, because while you may be in the same place, you are at a higher level each time you go round the spiral. And this is exactly what John is doing in these verses as he impresses upon us the need to love one another as a mark of being in Christ. And the first thing, then, that you should notice from verses 7 and 8 is that the command to love is related now to the very ultimate thing to the nature and character of God himself. Now it's interesting to notice that when John dealt with this theme on the two previous occasions in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, and you may want to turn to those verses, you'll notice that he related the need to love one another to walking in the true light in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, and again you may want to turn to that passage, he related our duty to love one another to walking with the gift of eternal life and as a mark of having and possessing the gift of eternal life. If we possess eternal life, John said in those verses, then the mark will be that we love one another in the Lord. Now, each of these, of course, is important, and each is a preparation for this third and higher development on the spiral staircase which he brings to us now. And he brings the most powerful argument of the two that he has mustered already as he introduces this third one and says to us, the reason why you must love one another is because this is of the very nature and character of God himself. God is love, and that is why you ought to love one another. And as Robert Law in his commentary upon this passage reminds us, we've come, beloved, to the very high watermark of this whole letter, the highest point that it reaches, the sublimest height, as he says, when you consider that God is love. 
and why I ought to love my fellow Christian is because the very nature of God requires it. Now, having said that, then look with me at what this means, and we could spend an evening of this, on this, and I'm certainly not going to tonight, but it is so rich. What does it mean? And you notice in verse 7 that God is the source of love. Love comes from God, says John. Therefore, the one <clears throat> who loves, the Christian who loves, must love them with the kind of love that comes from God himself. And that is only possible if the one who loves is born of God, as we have seen, because he possesses the very nature of God himself. And if he does not love, it is because he is not born of God, because love comes from God. And that's certainly what this commandment and requirement means. But then you notice that in verse 8 there is still higher ground, because in verse 8 we have that sublime statement that God himself is love. And this is even more profound than what we've read in verse 7. He's not only the source of love, you see, but he is love. And I want you to grasp what John is sharing with us. He's not saying that love is just an attribute of God, like his power, or his grace, or his goodness, or his holiness. He's going beyond this, but saying that in the deepest sense of all, God's own nature comprises love itself. But in the deepest sense, God's own nature is love. And it's a statement, you see, that parallels the other two statements of John about the nature of God in John's Gospel, chapter 4, where John says, God is spirit. And in 1 John, chapter 1, where John has told us, God is light. Now we face the truth that the very essence of God is not only spirit and not only light that is holiness in his nature, but it is supremely a nature of love. Now this is a staggering truth I suggest to you about God, and the New Testament writers realized this because while there were three words uh, current in New Testament times, that were used of love, the New Testament writers didn't choose any of them to describe the nature of God as love. They didn't use the word eros that was human love generally and often in a sexual sense. They didn't use the word storge in Greek that describes simply natural affection between animals or people. They didn't even use the word philia that describes the love between a man and a woman without any sexual connotation necessarily, but they introduced the new New Testament word agape, something that they coined themselves and introduced into the vocabulary of the Greek-speaking world, something that is exclusive to God and is foreign to natural men. 
because this word describes a love that goes out and gives and gives itself with no desire to get from the one upon whom that kind of love is bestowed. And this is the divine love, beloved, aroused by nothing outside of itself that springs from the very essence and nature of God and who therefore is able to love the unlovely and the undeserving, a love that is all-giving. And this is unique to God. Now do you see what I'm saying to you? that John delivers to us the unique truth that comes from the Christian revelation, not that God is loving, but that God is love, that it is fundamental to his very nature to act in this way, not to the exclusion of his other attributes of justice and holiness, but a love that is a holy justice, a love that is a holy grace, and this we have uniquely in the Christian revelation. Now the reason why God, that John gives us this, of course, is that the application, you notice, comes in the later verses, that if God's nature is like this, verse 8, then the person that does not love does not know God. And that is the simple truth. And you see, as we apply it to our lives, we have to say to ourselves, do I have this kind of love in my relationship with fellow Christians? The agape love of God that goes out to them, even though they may be unlovely and unattractive and they have sharp edges and rough corners? And by nature, I might not want to associate with this brother or sister in the Lord. But am I motivated by the example that God has in his very nature shown and revealed to us? God is love with an outgoing love. And I, therefore, in my Christian life, if I have been born of God, must learn to love like that. And you know, in my experience, if a Christian has truly become a new creation in Christ, this love of God is infectious. It is transforming. If I have experienced it in my own life, I'm lovely as I am, and loaded with sin as I was, and in a certain sense still am, then that love is going to transform me to be able to go out and love in a way that is not natural, but supernatural in the body of Christ. And you know, this is the question. Why does John exhort us to do this? If we have received this transforming love of God ourselves, and the answer to that question is, that it is not natural, it is natural rather for us to do it, but it is not automatic. And that's why we have to stir ourselves up to fulfill 
that duty and work out what God himself has worked into us. The first reason to love one another is that this is the very nature and character of God himself. This is the first great motive from the passage. Now, the second one follows very quickly, you notice, in verses 9 through 11. And this time it focuses upon Jesus Christ, God's Son, how God has revealed himself to us in his own dear Son is the second motive. Now, do you see what John is doing? He's really answering the objector's question. And the objector might say, well, it's all very well for you to speak about the character and nature of God, but we don't see him. No man has seen God at any time. How do we know that his character and essence and nature is all pure and unadulterated love? Where is the evidence for this love of God? And John answers in verses 9 through 11, this is how God, who is love, has showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And when the man stands before us and says, but the world is full of suffering and painfulness, and there are innocent victims of injustice, and that God that you say is all pure love, appears indifferent and does nothing for all of this, we say to him, Behold, the love of God in the giving of his own Son, that we who are his people might live through him. Now let's look at this for a few moments together. There are really three aspects of this love of God that is manifested in the gift of Christ that should stand out before us. Look at verse 9. What did God do? You notice how John builds up his case. God gave us, says John in verse 9, what? His Son. Now think of it. The very best that there was to give. Nothing could possibly be greater in the whole universe of God than the gift of his own Son. Nothing in this vast universe could possibly be imagined to exceed this gift. Have you thought of it as a human father or as a human mother, but it picked particularly as a human father? Would you give your own son or even your own daughter? It's the very last thing that a parent would do. He would part with possessions. He would part with his home. He would part, if necessary, with his career. Surely, if we are faithful parents, we would part even with our own lives to preserve the life of our own son. And when God gave his own son, he gave the greatest and the dearest gift that he could ever give. As Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15, where he speaks of God's indescribable gift. Or in Romans 8, where he reminds us, if God spared not his own son, how should he not with him freely give us all things? So he gave us his son as an incentive 
for the Christian to learn to love his fellow Christian. But you notice, secondly, that as John builds, he gave us his own son to die, because this is the implication of verse 10. If he had given him to teach, that would have been wonderful, beyond our deserving. If he had given him merely as a great example to God's people in living the righteous life and dying the sacrificial and self-effacing death, that would have been wonderful. But beyond all this, the New Testament emphasizes the readiness of the Son of God to deliver himself up, not merely to death that was ordinary, but death that was extraordinary, to stand in the place of the criminal. And this is evidence, says John, of the depth to which the love of God will go. But he gave his Son to die for us, his people. But thirdly, you notice in verse 10, the very deaths themselves are plumbed, that he might in that death be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we've seen that John has mentioned this already, that Jesus is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice. He became the willing object of God's eternal and almighty wrath. And you see, the seriousness of sin is not its effect on me or on others, but the seriousness of sin is its effect upon God because it draws the wrath of God down upon men's sin and sinfulness, and that wrath abides upon them. And what the Lord Jesus had to do in that awful death that he died upon the cross was to bear the holy, just wrath of Almighty God that was due to us, so that you remember he cried out in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And this is the measure of the love of God in Christ. Think of it. That he devised such a plan of salvation and as John builds up the picture, he sent his son, his only begotten son, John says, that he might be the propitiation, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for the end that sinners. What a degrading cause that sinners might be justified through him as the wrath of God is propitiated and their sin is removed. Now do you see, beloved, what the apostle is saying to you? You know, men may say today the ways of God are a mystery and I don't understand them. But you know, I have to say to you in the light of this passage, the ways of God may be a mystery, but his love is no mystery. And never let anyone stand in your presence and say to you, as I said to you earlier this evening as an example, where is the love of this unseen God who seems to be so unconcerned about the suffering and injustice in this world? When you can point to God sending his Son, his only begotten Son, 
to be the wrath-satisfying sacrifice that takes away the deadliness of human sin. And do you see that it's on this basis that John goes on to say that we ought to love one another. Look at verse 11. Since God so loved us, in this way of sending his Son, we ought to love one another. It's commanded. It's not an optional extra. It's not that I decide I'm going to love my fellow brothers in Christ, my fellow sisters. It's an obligation to do it because God so loved us and we ought, therefore, to love one another. Beloved, this is not an emotion. It is a willing commitment of ourselves in the light of the facts to invest our lives, as it were, in the lives of others and to illustrate that love of God as we are thankful for the death of Christ on our behalf. Now thirdly, as I begin to draw to a conclusion, you see how God not only has revealed himself as love in his own character and person and has shown that love visibly and tangibly in sending his own son. But thirdly, the love of God is revealed in his people. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God, says John, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, I wonder if you understand the significance of that closing verse. Remember the progression of John's thought. The unseen God in his own character and nature and essence is love. His love has been made visible supremely in the sending of his only begotten Son. But, say some people, that was long ago and far away. And I still don't see it. And John's answer is, but you see, God's love is also revealed contemporaneously in his people. When they love one another, the love of God is being perfected in its revelation to sinful men. And what a privilege that is that we should be vehicles to an unbelieving world of showing what the love of God is like. Now do you understand what I'm saying to you? But the love of God is manifested in the love we show to one another. And it is completed, says John, and perfected in us. It's amazing. It's brought to the fore again and again and again before the eyes of unbelieving people who no longer read the Bible, who don't know about the Son of God. We are the Bible, but they read by and large. And whenever we are living as we should, we are a visible and tangible demonstration of the eternal character of the ever-blessed God 
who has loved us in Christ our Lord. God is revealing himself contemporaneously in his people when they love one another. Now what's the application of that? Well, you see, the scriptures would make it very clear that whenever there are petty animosities that break out in a fellowship of God's people, when we quarrel with one another, instead of supporting and understanding one another and praying for one another, whenever there is a spirit that lacks Christian love in the brotherhood and among the sisterhood, then what we are doing, beloved, is silencing the gospel. We are drawing a veil over the love of God that should be shining out from us. And we are obscuring God to the world. And that's why, you know, a Christian cannot decide that he will not love someone in the fellowship, that he will not talk to this person, that he will not care for that person. You can't take that kind of decision. Because it's not some private kind of decision that a Christian can take. Because if we live or attempt to live in that way, our conduct is so inconsistent, it is silencing the gospel of God's grace. Now do you see where we've been this evening as I come to a conclusion? What do people see in your relationships? and in mine with one another in the church? Do they see a failure to live this way? A failure to remember that God is love, that that is the great, supreme, the highest ground and motive why I should love my fellow brethren in Christ? Do they see me living without consideration to the love of God that has been shown in the Lord Jesus to me in his dying for me and becoming the wrath-satisfying sacrifice that cancels out my sin? Do they see me failing to love my fellow Christian when this is the very perfection and completion of God's love that has been revealed to us? Do they see me, in a word, silencing the gospel? Or do they see in my life the love of God being filled out and made complete day by day with an example that is increasingly convicting to them as they see it demonstrated in my life? You know, one of the commentators on this passage said that the strongest apologetic that God has in the world today is when Christians love one another. And I would qualify it and say, of course, the strongest apologetic, that is, the strongest defense and reason that God has, the presentation of himself is the preaching of the gospel. But next to that is, without any question, the way in which God's people love one another. Well, where are you this evening? What is your practice? Is it failure in this vital area? Or is it, by God's grace, a lamp that is burning brighter and brighter 
O oh, may God give wings to our understanding of this scripture and enable us to go out into this dark world with power and conviction by our very lives displaying the love of God that has changed us. Beloved, let us love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for this further study in this great book, and may these three great motivations from the character of God and the work of the Lord Jesus and the example of God's people in a fallen world motivate us to live in ever deeper love for one another. And by that principle that truly says from the heart, I will give readily my life in the place of yours. For Jesus' sake, amen.